This message is entitled, A Little Walk Through History. I'd been thinking a lot about history in America these past several months, and I thought it would do well to take us back in a short and brief walk through history. In colonial America, there were wealthy and there were commoners, as they were referred to. And they had for centuries already governed themselves without kings and without lords and without noblemen or even titles of nobility. In fact, power in colonial America saw that what they had to do was lead commoners to stand firm in the appreciation of the liberty which was in each of their lives, ultimately to the necessity of causes by which they would cast off the shackles of abject slavery and join a cause bigger than either one of them individually could comprehend. It was a time when it took more than two weeks to get a letter from Boston to New York. Today we can scarcely understand that and comprehend in a day where we have mass transit and instantaneous messaging. Power in England was concentrated in the aristocracy and the colonists wealthy, well they weren't looked upon by that aristocracy with any high regard, in fact they were somewhat disdained. The year 1765, the Stamp Act was ratified. The colonists had not been consulted and it took six weeks for them to get the word of the legislation. The civil administration of Parliament had taxed with no consent or representation at all essentially reducing their status to that of servants, women. One man was quoted as saying, If a stamp man tells you to kiss his ash, shall he get away with it and live? Don't let your courage cool or a few bullies scare you. We've nothing to fear but slavery. Love your liberty and fight for it like men who know its value. Once lost, it will never be regained. End quote. Here we are in America seeing that the power to tax is an immense power. It doesn't stop. It bleeds dry. And they understood this back then. They took an effigy of a tax man and they hung him on a tree and the objective of course was what? Force him to resign. Others boycotted. They decided and understood united we stand, divided we fall. Franklin was quoted our buying your manufactured goods depends very much on our affection for you. Pride will induce Americans to wear our old clothes, and when we buy new clothes, they'll be made by us. Edmund Burke also stated, quote, What are we doing by our constant taxing of the Americans? We're not getting any revenue from them. Instead, we are pushing them to disorder and disobedience. You can wait up to your eyes in blood and you'll be back where you started with no revenue. We make money from trade, not from taxes. Let the Americans tax themselves." End quote. Well, the Stamp Act did in fact get repealed under the pressure, but this was a time when France's king claimed that he was the direct representatives of the Lord God Almighty himself. This is an ultimate of the perversion that we've seen in America, where the clergy has taken Romans 13:1-8 and treated it the same way that the king of France did. The king of Spain at that time was taxing its subjects with impunity, and Catherine the Great of Russia, she was cutting off the heads of her political opponents and displaying them on stakes. 
Today we've got presidents of the United States implementing executive orders routinely with broad powers with far-reaching consequences. They appoint czars to lord over every conceivable area of industry for their insatiable appetite and lust after the covetousness of their hearts and their constituent base. They appoint commissioners and boards to ostensibly address the redress of the people without even a care or a concern of the use of the taxes imposed upon the people to pay for the boards, the czars, the commissioners, while they continually neglect the weightier matter, which is the relief that's being sought for. And the oppression continues without so much as a single provision being implemented for the relief of their grievances. Legislators busy themselves about their financial needs for the elections that are coming on and they pass on legislations which benefit their campaign donors lobbying for redistricting and controls of their donors' comp competitors. They're imposing taxes and regulations and debt burdens upon the third and the fourth generation without so much as even a hint of concern for the extent of the destruction to the industry of the human spirit. The Constitution drafted to restrain them is now a mockery, no longer capable of its direct intended objective of liberty. In colonial and past colonial America, there were sentiments, many sentiments, regarding the very thing we see today. Nicholas Presswell is quoted as saying, Anyone with the least spark of industry can support a family. No one fears poverty here. End quote. See, even they believed obedience and liberty are handmaids of God and handmaids for civil administration in America. And they could see that civil administration by the hand of Parliament was destined to place them in servitude and bondage at the hands of a ruling elite. The same day that the Stamp Act was repealed, the Parliament of Britain passed the Declaratory Act. It was an act declaring an absolute right of British Parliament to make laws for the American colonies in all cases whatsoever. And it was a year later when the taxes began. And they would cement and convey the Parliament's authority over these American subjects in the form of duties from England on nearly everything. John Adams quoted, The idea that a body of men in England who know nothing of the colonies and see nothing of the misery their taxes will inflict upon them have given themselves the right to command our lives and our property at all times and in all cases whatsoever. This is the logic of robbers and highwaymen. End quote. At this time, Ireland was subjugated by the same type of unwarranted oppression the uh, Declaratory Act had already authorized. And if they didn't act here in the colonies, Ireland's fate was going to be theirs. They knew that it called for swift and decisive action. They did so in the form of a boycott of English goods. Entire people, they recognized, needed to be mobilized. I thought back to Pastor Peters in 2010, how he encouraged the Acres of Diamond men. He presented the opportunity and the means to band together to be prophets, priests, and kings, and nobles, and convey the righteousness of the kingdom of God. 2011, he gave you a prophetic message that it is the year we win. 
My question became to myself, are we going to let his death be nothing more than a passing of a mere friend, or will you rise to the prophetic message challenging you to win? The only way to win is to run the race as a winner. Should we not answer his call? I see that he gave us the ministry to carry out that prophet's disposition, asking men to come forward and supply the ministry with messages to run and air on the network in shortwave. He started the Solutions Broadcast, a way to get together on day-to-day activities and talk about the day-to-day occurrences and issues and have a discussion and convey them in a biblical context to other listeners so as to develop more understanding of God's will and to articulate it on a more regular basis. 52 weeks a year, that's only one broadcast every year and a half for 70 men. So I ask... Do the prophets stop dying in vain? And do I deserve disdain because I tell you the truth? Who has taught you that you should not equally share the burden and pain wherewith the liberty of God shall be fought for? Samuel Adams summed it up this way. I'm no friend of riots and tumults, but when people are oppressed, when their natural liberty is infringed upon, When arbitrary rulers are put over them, when government is secret, the people do become alarmed. If they have any spirit of freedom, they'll fight for their liberties, and they're justified in doing so. That was a time when a custom agent was stripped naked and his body was tarred and feathered. They, They asked, are we to pity the wretchedness of the one who carries out the wickedness? I dare say that if a thirst for liberty were the passion of today, one would readily be able to discern the external power exerted against it. Should we acquiesce endlessly to the burden of oppression and bondage for a fleeting moment of liberty and order? When the British government decides it's necessary for proper order and sends a brigade of troops to Boston, Ben Franklin was quoted as saying, quote, Sending troops to Boston is asking for trouble. It's like putting young soldiers in the midst of people who consider themselves threatened and oppressed tantamount to setting up a blacksmith forge in the middle of a gunpowder magazine. End quote. Here we are, by 1770, angry colonists threw snowballs at those British soldiers, and five colonists were now dead. It became known as the Boston Massacre and it galvanizes the people's resolve. Franklin again states, I recently took a tour of Ireland and Scotland. In those countries, there is a very small number of gentlemen and noblemen living in the highest opulence, while the bulk of the people, the tenants, live in the most sordid wretchedness. While traveling, I often thought of the happiness of New England, where every man owns some land, has a vote, and lives in a tiny warm house, plenty of food and fuel, and has sturdy clothes from head to foot. Long may we continue in this condition. You see, what Franklin saw in England was incredibly inept people put in power. Can anyone say Barney Frank, George Bush, William Jefferson Clinton... Barack Hussein Obama, Geithner, Rubin, you know them all. You see, he saw the arrogancy and the great disparity between the rich and the poor, power and wretchedness. The longer God's people observe their surroundings, they should amply recognize the utter depravity of his condition, and he should at once endeavor to shake the shackles of that depravity before his children, 
should have to witness the bloodshed necessary to restore decency and righteousness to his surroundings. When Franklin comes across a letter from Thomas Hutchinson to a member of Parliament, and Hutchinson's subsequent appointment as a royal governor of Massachusetts, it became pretty clear and obvious. It was then determined Hutchinson's cowardice and traitorous action of trading the liberties of New England for jobs and a profit, they had to be exposed. So he did so, intending it will cast dispersion on Hutchinson and the Parliament and the colonists will be able to reconcile some of the differences. However, King George, he's beginning to become quite pleased with the prospects of these revenues that Parliament has sought to bequeath to him on the backs of the colonists. This is what he says in a letter to the Prime Minister. Quote, I'm very fond of the end you are taking in bringing the Americans to their duty. I do not, however, want to drive them to despair, only to submission. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, this is exactly what Pastor Peter J. Peters taught us about why the kings in the parliaments of old were so against the humble, righteous, moral, and industrious people of the Christian way. Submission to the authority of God is contrary with the submission to the authority of man, and they must not be forced over the edge into despair, only submission, or he would run the risk of losing his entire dominion to an unknown, at least to them, an unknown God. It's now November 1773. East India Tea arrives at Boston Harbor. The tea tax is due, and Hutchinson orders its unloading, but instead, 340 chests of tea are dumped into the harbor. One of the men dumping the tea decides to stuff some of the tea in his pocket. They stripped him naked, sent him home to bear his shame. Reminds me of Saul taking the spoils in 1 Samuel. You know, it can't be considered lightly what that act was. It was a formidable political act. Public displays of defiance like this, they're long remembered, and they will be the subjects of encouragement for your children. These are the same acts and displays and defiance of man that you find throughout the Bible. And we must understand, however, that those in power, they will ratchet up their wickedness and their oppressive acts. And men of God must not be daunted by these aggressive acts, even as you consider your entire generation may be doomed. A righteous cause will not go unnoticed by your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will bless your posterity and he will give to you a crown of glory. And that needs to be what our focus is. When we look back to 1774, we find a series of acts that became known as the Coercive Acts. And they were designed to bring the colonists into submission. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, what we are seeing right now today is that same series of acts intending to bring us into submission. And the question is, is what do you do about something that you don't know how to respond in those days, they understood. You form a committee, and then they united in one spirit, in one cause. John Adams addressed the situation with the providential understandings it was no doubt going to be a shift in human relations. This is what he said, quote, 
What's about to happen is almost too big for my grasp. We don't have men fit for these times. We lack education and the experience in the world, money, everything. I feel an utterable anxiety. God grant us the wisdom and strength in the coming months. End quote. God did grant them the strength and the wisdom in the coming months. September 5, 1774, 56 delegates of the First Continental Congress is convened on Carpenter's Hill in Pennsylvania. For two months, John Adams comes away and says, I am discovering this continent is a vast, unwielding machine. We are 13 colonies, strangers, largely unacquainted with each other, now rushing together in one great mass. It is not surprising we are jealous of each other's designs, fearful, timid, skittish, end quote. During that year, 1774, there were 13 different movements against the British aggression and oppression. February 1775, the Parliament and King has received word of the formation of the Continental Congress and the Declaration and Resolve to arm themselves against the aggressors. George Washington, after that Lexington Concord first shots, is quoted as saying, quote, The brother's sword has been sheathed in the brother's breast. We now have a sad choice. Either we live as slaves, or the once happy plains of America are to be drenched in blood. End quote. The Battle of Bunker Hill begins nine miles from John and Abigail Adams's home. All this while the Prohibitory Act of 1775 is declaring the colonists out of the king's protection, enemies, and the British Navy is ordered to attack the seaports. Franklin writes to William Stratham, a member of England's Parliament, quote, You are a member of Parliament, one of the majority that has doomed my country to destruction. Look at the blood on your hands. It is the blood of your family. We were once good friends. You are now my enemy, end quote. There is a burning and a rage toward the political elite. They believe ordinary people can govern themselves. Thomas Paine states, We have it in our power to begin the world anew. That is, the opportunity to bring forward a civil administration that the liberties of all men are to be preserved, that gives value to independence. Oh, yea, that love mankind, ye that dare oppose not only the tyrants, but the tyrant. America stand for it, not for herself alone, but for the world. End quote. I thought about that quote and how Jesus not only stood, but he stood and then died for his people and all the people over the world who would but acknowledge him and believe on him. Just ordinary people, ladies and gentlemen, making their voices here, pledging fortunes, lives, and sacred honor. It's now... 1776. John Adams says July 2nd, 1776 is a day in which ought to be celebrated by seceding generations as the day of deliverance. I am well aware of the blood, the toil, and the treasure it will cost us to maintain this declaration. Yet through the gloom I can see the rays of ravishing light and the glory 
I can see the end is more than just the means. Posterity will triumph in this day's business even though we may regret it. I trust in God. We shall not. End quote. This was a new abstract idea. It was an idea of liberty, no longer an idea of advancing for territory, but rather an idea acknowledging and advancing liberty for all mankind. It was a great military display. 30,000 troops, 10,000 sailors, 300 supply ships, 30 cannon ships pulled into the New York Harbor. What do you think was going on in those people's head as they saw this massive display of military power and prowess? July 12, 1776, two generals order two battalions up the Hudson and unleash an awful display of military force. What now is facing America is 13 separate and distinct territories which were populated by groups from all over Europe and the Isles northward and southward. They followed ancestors and families in many cases to those specific to them. And this created in essence cultures in a sense very different from each other. Certain jealousies and animosities would plague General Washington's need for discipline and unity of purpose and cause. Many of the enlisted thought it was nothing more than a new adventure. Washington states, The provinces must all be united to oppose a common enemy. All distinctions must be sunk in the name of American. End quote. What would Washington think today where we have Asian American, Mexican American, African American, Hindu American, Mormon American, Judeo-Christian American, Mohammedan, I, I mean the list goes on and on, even Antichrist American. You know, God's people, they've sold their birthright of liberty in America for a mess of pottage called capitalism. Liberty having long since been set aside because capitalism is different than liberty. I know that statement's going to make some people angry, but it's true. Fasting forward to August 1776, 15,000 troops embark on Brooklyn, outnumbering the Americans two to one. On the east of the front was the Jamaican Pass. Unguarded, ten British troops went through undetected and came in from behind the Americans and they only escaped through the Gowanus Marsh. British and German Hessians slaughtered their kinsmen in the flesh and the event went on for hours. Under a deep fog, Washington is able to ferry the entire Continental Army across the Hudson and it's now in New York. And the Army does escape, but New York is taken by the British. Washington states, Remember, soldiers, you are free men, fighting for the blessings of liberty. Remember, you and your descendants will become slaves if you do not acquit yourself as men. Remember, Boston and Charleston, the enemy discovered at great cost what a few brave men fighting for their own land for the best of causes could do against soldiers for hire." In other words, Washington tried to teach his men 
that they were better than a military industrial complex of the 18th century and that to fight for the cause of liberty is more noble than trained mercenaries coldly and callously for pay killing those they were ordered to within months fully a fifth of the army is sick with dysentery losing battles is certainly a bad recruiting concept Washington appeals to Congress to grant authority to use land and money as an inducement the only problem is he has a Congress which has no authority to raise a levy as all the colonies are independently structured and so it's much like having a know-nothing Congress of today the final nail in the 90 days since British came ashore was the loss of Fort Washington and the armaments that it contained. Then they took Fort Lee, Washington again. It seems impossible to continue my command in this situation, but if I withdraw, all will be lost. I've begged Congress. All I get back is delays and quarrels. Then the states send me officers who aren't fit to polish boots. John... I'm sick to death at what is going on. Every day, things get worse. Congress botches things up, and I get the blame. End quote. British General Howe is quoted as saying, We have a report from someone close to Washington family. The general looks extremely dejected. He spends much of his time alone. People who have walked in on him have found him in tears. End quote. How many of God's people are alone in their rooms, in their prayerful tears, to the merciful God of all creation, to grant them mercy in the desire of their cause, tears which the Almighty knows and understands when each one hits the ground. The fate of the America is now in its darkest moment. Six thousand troops and Washington and a merciful God. Washington decides to take a page from the history of Gideon. He risked the entire army to an attack on the Hessians at Trenton. It's an all or nothing. A soldier's diary records the essence of the plan, and I quote, December 23rd, New Orders. We're moving out with three days' rations. Washington has given us the password for the operation, victory or death, end quote. Washington takes 12,000 prisoners. English Colonel Rawl had a visit that Christmas night. He was too busy partying and drinking to see the man. So the man scribbled a note, and the note retrieved from the dead colonel's trousers two days later read, quote, The Americas are coming to attack you tomorrow a.m. Praise God. New Jersey residents who had vowed to support the king, they've now changed their mood. They support the army and they volunteer by the hundreds. The courage of one man becomes the lifeblood of thousands. Meanwhile, Franklin has been seeking to engage a treaty with France, but King Louis XVI refuses to see Franklin. June 1777, General Burgoyne sets up a large force along the south coast of Canada by Montreal to take the northern end of the river, which leads to Lake Champlain, and cut off New England from the rest of the American colonies, with Colonel Howe moving north on the Hudson. It's a critical expedition. Only 23 miles separate the lake 
from the Hudson, and Washington must keep Colonel House and Colonel Burgoyne at bay. He has 2,000 American soldiers at Fort Ticonderoga with Mount Defiance as its backdrop. An extraordinary military feat of the British was executed to scale the mountain and to fortify it, making the fort of no use, and the Americans must now abandon. This 23 miles is brutal on the British Hessians. In July, General Howe leaves New York Harbor, and Washington has no idea where Howe was to go. Washington makes an appeal to the New England militia to stop Burgoyne. As Burgoyne makes his way along, he proffers the inhabited areas with a proclamation of their safety, if they in essence open their homes to quarter the men and feed them and their animals. It enrages the farmers of the country, and as the troops advance, the militias begin to take form. An English visitor and traveler in America, Nicholas Presswell, writes this of the time, quote, New recruits are collecting in every town on the continent. In a few months the rascals will be stronger than ever. Even the preachers have turned their pulpits into drums, summoning all to arms among this cursed rabble. Damn them all! End quote. General Burgoyne enlists 400 Iroquois Indians and uses it as a weapon of terror against the colonists. Jane McCroy is murdered. No one knows how she was killed, but the colonists take advantage of it and use it as a propaganda tool to turn the colonists' passion against Burgoyne. The militias turn out in droves to impede Burgoyne's advance to one week to the mile, causing the Burgoyne army to plunder farmers, and Burgoyne loses 800 Hessians not anticipating opposition as he heads for Bennington, Vermont to get horses. Late August, Howe's ship Armada is seen on the Delaware Bay to take Philadelphia first and then meet with Burgoyne. Washington rushes to Philadelphia for support. Outside New York, the militias opposing Burgoyne are mounting, led by Horatio Gates. John Adams writes, Congress has sent Gates to take charge of the army from the north. This is what New England wanted. Now let them turn out in force. A fleet of 100 ships was seen off the Delaware Capes, where how this scourge of mankind is going to land is anyone's guess. End quote. Meanwhile, Burgoyne's Indian guides are regularly abandoning him, and by the time he gets to Saratoga, his Indian guides and ears are no more, and he has no idea that the American enemy, the citizen militia, and New England army is now over 7,000 in number, and are encamped on Freeman's farm overlooking Albany, where Burgoyne is now headed. Howe captures Philadelphia after the Brandywine battle, but he's to suffer heavily. Howe finds that the seat of colonial government appears not to be in session, so this battle victory, without seizing the government of the colonies, is a major defeat. At Saratoga, Burgoyne is outnumbered two to one. Burgoyne, under the encouragement of his generals, abandons the council to retreat across the Hudson and orders in instead an attack on the Americans. October 7, British attack the Americans. The response is weak. General Gates, commander of the American troops, he won't even leave his tent. A mere paper shuffler. He's incompetent to lead the army. 
It is instead the fearless brilliance of General Benedict Arnold, whose horse is shot out from under him, leaving him with serious wounds, ordering his troops to continue on the assault on the British troops. Unfortunately, this is the same Benedict Arnold who would betray his country just a few years later. Burgoyne's General Fraser is hit, and the troops rally to his aid, but it's a gut shot which takes him the next morning. October 17, near Saratoga, the British lay down their weapons. General Gates meets Burgoyne at the gate of the camp. Quote, the fortune of war, General Gates, has made me your prisoner. Burgoyne drew his sword from his sheath and relinquishes it to General Gates. Now, as the British troops are marched in front of Gates, they are able to see the face of the combatants who secured their defeat. Mere boys, tatteredly dressed farmers, citizens as ordinary you'd see them on any day. The face of America, a new race of men, one officer is to have said. Saratoga changes everything for Franklin. He's received by the King of France, and a trade treaty is ratified. And he writes, Your troubles will not last much longer. We have formed a treaty with the French. This will serve to keep the English bull quiet and make him behave himself. His horns have been shortened. End quote. The war rages on, now in its fifth year. Britain decides to take its efforts to the south and engage the black slaves to rise up against their masters, giving them the means to do so. Their hands will drip with the blood of their masters. General Clinton engages Charleston, South Carolina for six weeks before the entire southern contingent of the American army is either killed or taken captive. Britain's use of the proclamation to encourage colonists to yield to and come under the authority of Britain is increased throughout the South. General Clinton puts Cornwallis in charge and directs a plan to pit loyalists against patriots, but many of the loyalists in the South are relatively new immigrants, a lot of Scots and Irish, who have not been well received over the years for their lack of, quote, breeding. One diary of the English gentry reads, quote, They are descendants from Britain's past, but they are one step removed from broods. There's no authority, no churches, schools, ha, and no law. Fighting, brawling, fornicating, they're gloried in, end quote. Those are England's criminals, no doubt. These have seized on the power given them, they set out to settle old scores against the plantation owners. Another diary of a British soldier, mortified by their barbarity, states, quote, We crossed the field, littered with carcasses of dead animals everywhere. We enter the plantation house. Broken china, figurines litter the floor. On the shelf in their stead is five human heads. Then the barbarians, a pregnant woman, murdered in her bed, and above the canopy of the bed, written in her own blood, Thou shalt never give birth to a rebel." End quote. The plan to use these rebel bandits is igniting the patriots. Then something totally unexpected occurs. Benedict Arnold, one of Washington's greatest generals, defects to the British. Washington must keep the army intact. 
He receives many enlistments, many French nobles. Lafayette is one of them, and secures an army from the King of France. Washington knows he must get an army presence back in the South. He commissions General Nathaniel Greene. He recognizes he needs to show the British as the enemy. He engages Cornwallis in somewhat of a cat-and-mouse strategy as Cornwallis chases him through South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia. It takes them away from their supplies and their storehouse. The British begin to plunder and destroy along the way for much-needed supplies and food, but Cornwallis loses over 500 men to sickness and heat exhaustion, while Green loses every battle but reclaims both Carolina and Georgia. A Hessian mercenary enlisted with the British regulars writes, quote, What other army in the world would put up with what these men do? Even our best disciplined German soldiers would desert in droves rather than face the condition our generals would soon be all alone. I now see what enthusiasm these ragged fellows call liberty can do. Out of this rabble rises a people who defies kings. End quote. August 1781, Cornwallis settles his army at Yorktown. Washington receives word that several ships and more than 3,000 men are there. Cornwallis is trapped by a blockade of Chesapeake Bay. Five years has seasoned Washington's army. Rochambeau is going to advance the siege against British defenses. Cornwallis, short on supplies, weeks into the siege, kills horses to save on supplies, and then begins to turn black slaves who joined him away to save provision for his troops. The blacks will have to deal with their former masters or join the American army. Yorktown Falls, October 17, 1781, and the British flag of truce is raised. Thomas Paine would later write, quote, They cannot conquer an idea with an army. End quote. British citizenry is burdened by the 40 million pounds of debt. It's no longer supporting the king's effort. Two years after the fall of Yorktown, a treaty is signed in Paris. British dignitaries decline posing for the customary and official portrait of the event. An American soldier's diary records, quote, The captain came in and handed us our discharge. Young men with warm hearts, through hardships and danger, these eight years, it's a sad time, and by now everyone's heard the old story of the soldiers tracking the blood of their feet on the frozen ground. It literally happened. But you don't know the one thousandth part of how we suffered. You never can. End quote. The war for independence has been fought. And it has been won. Now, how will it begin to formulate the means to become united in the cause which necessarily arises from that victory? A civil administration who is authorized to make treaties, levy tax for future defenses, etc. Washington now returns to Congress to return his commission, and he says, I have the honor of surrendering into the hands of Congress the trust which you have given me. Many years ago, when I accepted your commission, I never thought I had the ability to accomplish so difficult a task. But these thoughts were always overcome by the belief in the justice of our cause. Having completed the work assigned to me, I retire from the great theater of action. For many years, 
I have acted under the orders of this august body, and now I bid an affectionate farewell to Congress. I return my commission and take leave of this public life. End quote. This very act of renouncing power, as opposed to seizing upon it and all its political clout, this is foreign in all of history. The peace treaty that Washington's command secures gives the Americans control of the land to the west, the north, to Nova Scotia. This opens the door for the greatest single mass migration to have ever occurred in the known world. Along with the end of monarchy came the end of white servitude within the century and by 1800 people are understanding and living out their equalness as men. Alexander Hamilton, a mere 28 years was single-minded to capitalize upon the prospect the resources of America will mean to its greatness. 25-year-old Noel Webster begins to write a speller for American English language. He writes, quote, We must not mimic our parents of another land, no longer children. We must now develop our national character. End quote. These two will become the instrumental glue which will bind the state together in the making of the greatest nation on earth. But the divisiveness and pettiness of the several states render them almost impotent to act on a single thing. Hamilton writes, quote, Sometimes I think I'm wasting my time in public service. I hate Congress. I hate the world. A mass of fools and knaves. I hate myself. End quote. Besides the border wars amongst the states, the Congress had no money and no ability or authority to bind the states to do a thing. The creditors of the war had come calling. It prompted John Adams to say, quote, We are being oppressed by the very men whose property we, we fought for, whose independence we bled for. Yes, we owe money to these men, whose purses are their consciences, Congress proposes to pass laws to cancel all the debts, having no way to repay them, and Shays' rebellion begins as a result. Open conflict seems to be the inevitable. Militias joining the insurgency, and now all three militias are joining the insurgency, and now all 13 states have rebellions breaking out. As Congress's enactment seems to trample upon the basic property rights of that of creditor and debtor. Noah Webster is prompted to say, I was as strong a believer in popular government as any man in America, but it was rapidly becoming the last government that I should choose. I even prefer a limited monarchy at this time, better the whims of one man than ignorance and passions of a mob." End quote. The belief in popular government now seems to be an elusive objective. Even the President of the Continental Congress is widely believed to have written to the Prince of Prussia, quote, Our free institutes of government have failed. Will you please come to America and be our king? End quote. By the grace and hand of God, the Prince declined the offer. It's now May 1787. Philadelphia becomes the center of America's finest representatives of the 13 states. 
which had become somewhat united under the Articles of Confederation. But Shea's rebellion is proof there is much more needed than this document that loosely is knitting the states together. God gives America small stature James Madison, who is largely an intellectual. He studied much of the old and new political civil administrative thought. He writes, quote, The big problem will be the degree which the federal government will have over the states. In the ancient governments, even where there wasn't some strong central authority, there was always some controlling power, and everyone knows what happened to those infections. And everyone knows what happened to the infictins. The same thing happened to the Achaean League. Too much local authority. This is the problem of the age. It's a problem of a seemingly insurmountable difficulty. Nothing can restrain the passions of the differing thoughts of the people. But at this moment, there must be a single-mindedness of their purpose against this formidable problem of the age, for the security and the safety of all the millions flooding to the shores. But Congress on this May day begins its deliberations on this task with an oath of silence. Convinced, should the population have any knowledge of the various deliberations, it would have the effect of stifling any of their actions. The weeks extend to months as the delegates hold their silence. Rumors are as inevitable as bees to a beehive. Patrick Henry assays the silence as the smell of a rat as two of New York's delegates depart the convention in protest, and four months have been spent debating this monumentous problem. It is now July 3rd as the blueprint for tackling the problem is revealed, and the prophetic birth of a nation in a day is about to emerge. It is an extensive system of checks and balances designed to protect the liberty of ever so much as a single individual from the power of tyrannical oppression by a few. Madison states, quote, The biggest danger to our rights today is not from governments acting against the will of the majority, but of government which has become the mere instrument of this majority. Think about it. That's where the abuse of power comes from. Not the tyranny of the king, but the tyranny of the majority. Wrong will be done by an all-powerful people, as it would be done by an all-powerful prince. End quote. The Constitution is made public September 19, 1787. The public is asked, How can anyone be against the new Constitution when our friend General Washington will be the first president under it? Well, that is fine, they are heard as saying. But how about when General Slushington, or who knows who, and what scoundrel becomes the second president? A landowner is quoted as saying, quote, Look at the Senate being created by the new Constitution. Six years? And they can be re-elected as often as they please? It's really an appointment for life. And they'll be in this new federal city, surrounded by walls of gold, gold flowing in from all our pockets. And they'll live in this Eden with their fellow senators, far away from any knowledge of how ordinary people live. End quote. The next six months, a wave of debate by the common people begins regarding the proposed Constitution. They come down in essentially two caps. 
First, the anti-federalists fear such things as the centralization of power, the terms of tenure, standing armies, taxing power. These are just a few of these non-imaginary fears, as well as a fear of an aristocracy built through the Senate. Another man is quoted as saying, quote, Government power will introduce itself into every corner of the country. It will wait upon the bodies of the toilette. It will enter into the house of every gentleman, watch over his cellar, watch upon his cook in the kitchen, penetrate into the most humble cottage. It will touch the head of every person in the United States. And to all those different people, the message will be the same. Give, 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 give. End quote. So says another, quote, This Constitution is an open invitation to Jews, heathens, to take over our country. Soon we'll even have the immigration of peoples from the Eastern Hemisphere, all because there is no religious qualification for office. None. End quote. Another, these lawyers, men of learning, these moneyed men who talk so finely at and gloss over the details so smoothly to make us poor folks swallow down the pill. They're the ones who will go to Congress. They'll get all the money and the power in their own hands, and they'll swallow up all us little folks. End quote. Now the Federalist effort to calm and allay those fears would remind that the Constitution allows for the election of leaders. They may be good people, smart people, even rich people, but they can also be kicked out if they no longer represent the people who elect them. Noah Webster writes, quote, Why should you have confidence in a person elected to your state legislature as opposed to someone elected to your federal legislature? Is there some magic spell that converts honest men to tyrants when they become delegates to Congress? End quote. Sadly, Mr. Webster did not foresee the coercive sorceries that would now emanate from Washington, D.C. Young James Madison concedes, Yes, this is new. Yes, it's never been tried. Many things Americans have done have never been tried before. We've accomplished independence, which has no parallel in the annals of human history. We've set up governments which have no model on the face of this globe. And now we can improve on this great confederacy. On this you must deliberate and decide. End quote. That great turmoil of ratification is the great turmoil of today. How powerful is the central government allowed to become? The special convention of the states in the winter of 1788 required nine states in which to ratify the Constitution as the law of the country. The debate between Federalists and Anti-Federalists is responded to point by point, and the Federalists have plausible response and seemingly safeguards against the fears of the Anti-Federalists. But the single greatest fear has no answer from the Federalists. The government will simply emerge too big and too powerful. Their argument is, while the premise of the Constitution spells out the rights, duties, and responsibilities of the national government, it fails to secure or protect the individual in their rights, their liberties, and unfettered pursuit of happiness. Where is the acknowledgment, they ask, of these in this document? Where is the acknowledgment of these in this document, they ask? Webster writes, quote, 
I can understand a bill of rights to prevent a king and barons from encroachment on the rights of the people, but I don't understand why we need a declaration of rights to protect us from our own elected legislature. In this new government, this bill of rights is absurd. It prevents what? Our own encroachments against ourselves? End quote. Others are saying, quote, Why not have a Bill of Rights? Why not a short document stating that our rights are preserved? Are you worried that it will use up too much paper? End quote. Another, quote, Our rights to a jury trial, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, this is the true substance of liberty. These unalienable rights cannot be touched by any government. Without these guarantees, we might as well appoint ourselves a king and take lessons in the art of bowing low. End quote. James Madison writes, quote, Liberty is not protected by parchment barriers. It is the very system of this new government that will protect us. Government is a separated into different branches, each with a different mode of election, and each with different powers. Ambition will be made to counteract ambition. In spite of these sentiments, James Madison becomes the ardent supporter of a Bill of Rights and drafts the document. It is the glue that provides the nation's people these cohesive protections. Now, these three documents are the essence of the American foundation of government, the Declaration, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. However, it is the preamble which expands we the people to include all peoples of all nationalities and all races. The top-down authority of aristocracies was now the bottom-up authority of the American people as the ratification of the Constitution and Bill of Rights became the law of the land. The monumental problem and challenge of the era seemed to have been solved by men. The question was, and now is, was it going to be successfully resolved? Will liberty remain possible for the great and the small? Will it remain the reward over pain, suffering, and bloodshed and disappointments of our not-too-distant past? 225 years pass. Was it enough, America? We now see, after 225 years or more have passed, that it was not enough, and it did not honor God, and our destruction is bearing down upon us. It is with fond remembrance of Pastor Peter Peters and his fight of faith that I remain thankful for this opportunity to minister under the children of the New Covenant, as Hebrews 8.8 informed us of. This is Doug Nelson, trusting you will hear these words one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant.